The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hackey Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. And today we have my new friend, Danielle Patchouli. Danielle, you're a medical ethicist, and we're going to learn all about it here at Different Brains. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Yes. All right, cool. Well, let's start off. Where are you? Tell us where you are. Sure. So a brief intro of myself. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Danielle Patchouli. <clears throat> I have my doctorate in health policy, health ethics, and health care, spe specifying in bioethics. So I am currently a clinical ethicist consultant at a hospital, and I provide consultative services to patients, families, and a clinical teams when necessary. So what that means is if there's a conflict between multiple family members, between the patient, the medical team, I'm called in and I go over the ethical as well as legal rights of each and in each case scenario that's provided for every patient and every family in the hospital. And you also deal with cases all over the world as well, a bit too. Yes, that's true. I am on a few different types of boards and committees. Currently, one that I'm heavily involved in right now is the end organ pillaging which is a committee in Canada and that just goes into organ donation and organ trafficking from China actually is where we focus and the ethics behind that and how to make that more ethically favorable for individuals living in China and no longer become prisoners who are then forced to donate their organs. Well I, I remember when I was uh commuting here from Fort Lauderdale up to Boston University, my alma mater medical school for 30 years, that we would hear stories in the cadaver labs about when cadavers were first starting out, so to speak, at the medical schools. They uh, Oftentimes there was a lot of ethics involved in shady ethics in uh, getting those bodies. And uh, many times they were going out and getting them. Yes, you know, ethics allows for all different types of individuals living and non-living to get guaranteed and proper care. And it's quite interesting that you speak about cadavers because that's one area that I am looking more into now because it is gaining more popularity in the ethics committee regarding medical research on cadavers and their rights and limitations. Well, I'm going to assume that our audience here at Different Brains, which is a pretty smart audience, are as ignorant as I am in what a true professional medical ethicist does every day. And so maybe the best way to do it is for you to give us some examples of your most interesting cases without giving up any confidentiality, of course, and letting us know some of the interesting things that we might not even think have anything to do with anything. Sure. So I would be more than happy to. So. Before I do so, I do want to just provide a little bit more background information. So there are <clears throat> four values that clinical ethicists go by, and they're called autonomy, non-maleficence, beneficence, and justice. And this is, again, just to guide the medical team, the families, the patients, and myself 
to honor the patient wishes, to do what's right by the patients, and cover all aspects that may be necessary. Clinical ethicists are available all over a hospital, including the ICU, the CCU, even the NICU, which is the neonatal intensive care unit, in case we don't know what that is. So we are all over the hospital, and we are gaining more popularity as more hospitals are creating a mandate for clinical ethicists to be present, not just a ethics committee, which is in hospitals already, but a clinical ethicist, someone like me, who has a master's or a doctor degree in training for this type of specific position. So I'm also paid to sit and talk with the family, as I said, and the medical team and figure out the scope of the situation is what and what is going on. And that really allows me to understand and unpack everything that may be going on, that the nurses and the medical team may not be able to have the time to sit down with the family and figure out what's going on, what mom would have wanted, what brother or someone else would have wanted. So it is an important position and an important role. And I'm very happy to see that the U.S., especially a lot of hospitals are getting more on board with this position and realizing the need that not only the hospitals can benefit from having someone like me as a clinical ethicist, but also the patients and the families of patients. Could you so, go over those four guideposts again you mentioned before, the four? Yes, the four values, of course. So the first one is autonomy. The second one is non-maleficence. Then we go into beneficence and justice. And what those four really summarize is autonomy of a patient, ensuring that the patient is given all of the guaranteed rights and values and looked at as a patient regardless of any other condition or background that they may bring. Non-maleficence is and beneficence is doing no harm to a patient and, again, ensuring the same principles of autonomy. And lastly, justice, are we doing legally what's right by the patient? Well, you know, and it's very interesting that people forget that about the uh, Hippocratic Oath and some other similar, which, which is first do the patient no harm. And sometimes we forget that. Yeah. Yes, you know, sometimes I've seen some cases, especially in the ER, when you have to make a very quick decision and the doctor is doing what the doctor feels is best in that situation. And although the doctor may not be wrong, there is perhaps a little story behind the family and the situation that may need some unpacking before we proceed with whatever procedure we're going to proceed with. So now let's go back to some of the most interesting medical ethics cases you've ever had without disclosing any confidential information. Sure, of course. So let's see. The first case I can present is an individual with an intellectual developmental disability. Now this patient was an adult. So in an adult, that means 18 and older. So you can make your own decisions when you're an adult. But because this patient was developmentally disabled, they had capacity to make some decisions, but not enough to make a final decision. So what I mean by that is in this particular situation, this person was admitted to the hospital for, I believe, something like a common cold, the flu, but it had gotten pretty severe. So therefore, they had to be into the hospital. And then the patient was no longer eating, didn't want to eat, 
perhaps didn't understand exactly what was going on. It was a little unclear. And if that's the case, then we get psychology involved on, to see where the patient lies. And so in the end, so one of the dilemmas with that case is the patient would have been expected to make a full recovery had the patient cooperated and ate them ate and took the proper medication and rested. However, this individual did not, as I said, want to eat. So that was becoming an ethical dilemma. You can't necessarily just force an individual to eat, although it might be easier for some of us to think that at times. So I was called in to figure out what was going on and to see the gravity of the situation and really just understand why. Why didn't this person want to eat? What was going on? So I'm sitting with this patient, getting to know them, and through our conversation, I learned that the patient was a vegetarian and the meals that they were being provided was meat-based meals, whether it was chicken or fish or any other meat. And so they weren't eating it. So it wasn't simply that they were refusing food, which is what the doctors and the medical team had concluded. It was that they didn't want to eat the actual food that they were given. So once I was able to have this conversation with the patient, we were able to clearly identify the proper food that this person needed. Now, this all could have been avoided with a quick and simple conversation, and maybe some of you are wondering why this hasn't happened previously, but I'm sure if you're aware, in a hospital at least, nurses and doctors are in and out in the blink of an eye, and they don't necessarily have the available resources and time to figure out why someone may not want to eat and unpack that situation. And for this particular case, we did have a healthcare proxy, which is someone to make decisions on the patient's behalf, but we didn't have to get that far because this person was out of state. So this patient was living in a group home setting and therefore we didn't really have much information on their background or their history. And there was some communications with the group home, but that's a different issue. So with those communication errors that we were experiencing, we couldn't understand Again, the patient not wanting to eat, but if we had a good communication with the group home, perhaps they would have enlightened us that this patient was a vegetarian and, you know, this is what they prefer to eat on a daily basis. So that's a, a pretty clean cut case is what I would consider. Now, I assume that you interface significantly with legal counsel. How does that work? What are the mechanics of that? Yes. So we... We, when I say we, I mean the ethics committee itself, but I'm the clinical ethicist. We deal a lot with the legal department in the hospital, as well as other, other committees in the hospital, such as psychiatry, if that's necessary, patient advocacy, um, any, any situation that could call for more people, more hands on deck, so to speak, would be better for the family and the patient. And again, it's all about the family and the patient. But getting back to the legal aspect, oftentimes it's manageable without legal action. However, I am thinking of this one particular case where we did have to get the legal team heavily involved, unfortunately. And I'll just quickly give that case if you don't mind. Sure, go right ahead. So this case was over the summer. It was a male in his 60s. He had a history of heart issues. He had some chest pain. He went to a local hospital. Then 
he became unresponsive. He had went into a coma while at this hospital. He, his heart, and then had a heart attack while in the coma. It was very, very interesting. So in the end, he got transferred to my current hospital. Now, this has been going on for 30 days at this point, by the time he got transferred. Again, tests show that it does not look like he's going to recover. There's a lot going around his heart, which I don't need to get into because that's not what my role is. All I need to know is the facts, and the facts were his heart was not doing well. It didn't look like it was going to recover. It's already been 30 days, and unfortunately, the longer people are in the hospital, the worse the outcome looks. So this family had a wife, and it included seven children. And the children were older. I would say they were in their 30s, maybe. And they had, the wife had healthcare proxy. And so she was able to make the decisions for her husband. But she wanted the family, meaning her children, to all help her and support her. And there were six children living locally. One child far away moved away. The six children were with their mother day in and day out. They saw the situation with their father. They were able to visually understand it, comprehend it. They called doctors. They met with doctors. And that's different than the one family member who was far away. Sure, they would speak to their siblings and their mother and even the medical team. But it's very different than when you see something happening in your eyes in front of you. So... The mother and the six children had agreed to remove every technical uh, technology device and just let nature do its course and let let uh, whatever happened happen. Because this individual had a G-tube, which is a feeding tube to get nutrients because they weren't unresponsive, so they needed something. So everything was just planned to be removed. Until this one pa- uh, one family member one child came from living away. They came home and they were just very upset. They weren't present this whole past 30 days. Now it's 45 days into the hospital stay and they were just very resistant. They didn't want this done. They wanted more treatment. They thought the doctors and the nursing staff were giving up. So a few days passed. They try to come to a compromise. They try to present all the findings and the tests and It just wasn't going well. The patient had asked to have a moment with their father in the room. Why not? Seems harmless, right? The patient locked herself and her father in the room and would not let anyone in, was quite hostile at the medical team through the door. Now, this patient had, because they were in the CCU, which is the critical care unit, so they had their own room. That's how they were able to close the door. And they wedged it somehow to lock it, and they weren't letting anyone in. We had to call security to remove the patient, because now the patient is not doing what's best. Sorry, not the patient. The family member was not doing what's best for the patient. So we called security. We ended up, of course, opening the door, getting the family member removed from the premise, because... They were just becoming very outspoken and outlandish. And ultimately, it was not this person's decision. Although the mother wanted everyone to be involved, legally speaking, it was not their decision. And this is where the legal counsel came involved. Because although this person was no longer welcome on the property, they had somehow 
And trust me, unfortunately, things go under the radar. This person arrived in the middle of the night because the following day it was agreed that all uh, technology devices would be removed. They arrived in the middle of the night, again, locked themselves in the room. But it's the middle of the night. No one really knows. No one really sees. Different staff, everything. So early morning comes, and it's made aware. Now, this patient's not allowed to be on this property, which is the hospital property at this point. So then we have to call the local police to get involved and properly remove the individual. We They then would be resistant with the police, with our security staff. And again, we had to get legal counsel involved, have them sit down with this person who was quite resistant in the family and just explain to them their ramifications if they were to continue and to be this resistant and that they should just cherish this remaining time with their father. So that's where ethics and legal had to work together for a situation. And this was a quite dramatic situation in the hospital. Danielle, I'm sure a lot of our audience are going to want to get in touch with you. How do they get in touch with you and learn more about you? Sure. So if you would like to get in touch with me specifically, we can get my email out there. I have no problem. I'm very responsive to emails. I do just want to put a disclaimer out there. Depending on what state you are in, there are different answers. So I may be, I'm pretty well versed for New York in the tri-state area. However, on this call that I was just on recently, uh, I was with an individual from Utah. So for example, I don't know about the laws as much in Utah. So with that disclaimer, I will be happy to answer any of your questions you may have. Well, Dr. Danielle Patchouli, thank you so much for being with us for this episode of Exploring Different Brains. Thank you. Thank you so much. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains, Inc. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.